Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Australia, the sixth largest country on earth, an ancient, rugged, and unforgiving land, with abundant animal life both beautiful and deadly, found within its awe-inspiring landscapes and natural beauty exists a deep history of unexplained mysteries for anyone with the courage to investigate them. Tonight, we join Ben on a journey across this vast island continent in search of answers to events that have reshaped the lives of so many that have been exposed to Unexplained Phenomena Australia with your host, Ben Hurl. Hello and welcome to episode four of Unexplained Phenomena Australia on the UNX Network. I'm your host, Ben Hurl. And Australia is a land of vast geographic space, and there are many uninhabited areas, and the majority of the population is coastal. The sheer quantity of unknown phenomena that is present here is staggering. No one knows the actual extent of it, uh, and much has actually been lost to time. Ad hoc groups, investigation groups, they come and they go. Information gets hoarded and not shared, and we're no different to anywhere else in the world. Aboriginal encounters are no doubt many over the years, but they're difficult to access and many are also lost to time as well. But here on Unexplained Phenomena Australia, we will piece by piece uncover what we can and examine as many different phenomena as possible. UFOs are the first under the investigative microscope and there's so much to look at here. There really is. In the last three episodes, we've already seen the wide variety of different high-grade cases that have occurred across Australia. 
And in these cases, we've seen animals in terror, multiple encounters, interaction with UFO occupants, ground trace evidence, and physical effects on witnesses. And one aspect that we haven't had time to see yet or haven't seen is telepathic communication, disembodied phenomena, and uh, perhaps ESP or thought transferal, where uh, entities are talking to witnesses via their mind. And we will see that in this week's episode. All of the cases that we have examined have been complex, strange, multifaceted. And what must be noted is that no one involved in any of these encounters went looking for the unknown. The unknown found them. There was no profit for witnesses. And most likely they're going to receive ridicule rather than profit. And if you look at all the years we've examined so far, 1966, 1972, 1980, late 80s, to name a few years, these were not necessarily enlightened times here in Australia. And to bravely state publicly that you'd had a strange encounter with a UFO, a flying saucer, or even a UAP, was definitely to go out on a limb. The public would be mildly fascinated at best, and the media usually, but not always, treated it as a slow Newsday item. And in this episode, we will continue to riff around more cases that are relatively unknown and fading from public consciousness, including those that we ran out of time for last week. If this show stimulates your interest, that's great. I will have achieved something. But if you do your own research, you will find out even more. And I encourage every student of the unknown to take those steps. Explore the unknown as much as you can. This and other shows and resources are so readily available now, unlike any other time in history. You can just access information in, in the, uh, with the internet and everything that's available now. Back in the old days, you got a newsletter or maybe a magazine or a book, and the information spread around a, a lot slower uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, perhaps getting a bit quicker by the 90s. And I encourage research so much. It is so rewarding to take a case and work it as far as it can be done. In the case of cold cases, this is especially rewarding. Finding long-lost witnesses, revisiting actual locations years later, digging up old news reports, finding old investigators, revisit, re-examine. The rewards are amazing. And presenting your findings for like-minded people to also enjoy and consider, I reckon, is priceless. And definitely local. Go local. Nothing is better than digging into your own local area, your region, your state, and you will be amazed at what you will find. That is some of the rewards for cold cases. And current cases, if they are investigation worthy, have the potential to be even better. Nothing like being front row to a current event. Either way, get involved as much as you can. If your interest is casual, that's okay as well. Commit what you can and get as much out of the unknown as possible. As the fireside chats, the discussion, the potential to learn uh, is, to learn is unlimited. So really get into it. Find like-minded folks to share your passion with. Often that may not be family members or even partners, but if it is, great. There are vast quantities of groups ranging from the informal to the fully incorporated out there. And tonight's encounters focus on car cases. And the first one is in the Northern Territory. 
and the second one is in my home state of Victoria. Both cases are female interaction, no males. And the third case, if we get to it, involves, involves men. But the first two involve women driving on lonely roads at night. One woman is alone in one case and the other has company. Both are extremely fascinating cases and are relatively unknown overseas, especially the first case that we've got for tonight. And I found it recounted in an old yellowing magazine. The newsprint and magazines really are the historical records for many UFO encounters, if they even make it that far. And they are not often recorded anywhere else. Unless UFO, unless UFO researchers of, the, of that particular time were able to talk to witnesses and visit potential um, physical evidence locations, a lot, of encounters, a lot of encounters didn't get that much attention. But if they were interesting enough, the print media would sometimes latch onto some really, really good cases. And the first case to discuss today is one that has been forgotten and lost to time. And I'm excited to bring out into the light of day again. It's extraordinary in many ways. It could have been like the Knowles family case um, and shares some similarities with it. The lonely desert roads bear witness to many strange events and they are perfect. And I mean perfect for extended high level encounters. And this case certainly gives us that. The backstory for this particular report is it was only appeared in an old tabuloid style magazine, which was called PIX, P-I-X, or slash People magazine. And it was famous for often outrageous stories and images, pop, pop style, and it was very popular at that time. And these magazines really latched onto UFOs and especially alien beings. But not all reports that they had were tongue in cheek or ridiculous. And this encounter certainly represents that. And UFO news was regularly featured in PIX magazine at the time. So what happened? Well, the date was the 12th of October, 1972. And the location was the Northern Territory and South Australia. A school teacher, her name was Helen Banger, and I'll just pop up a picture of her. That's her there. Plus two of her four children and her cousin, Dorothy Simpson, had a strange and lengthy encounter near Calgara, south of Alice Springs, while driving from Darwin to Adelaide. That's a big trip. That's from one end of the country to the other. Out in the Simpson Desert, while driving in her car, Helen and her companions played an involuntary game of hide-and-seek between their car and a very strange object. Helen was convinced that they had seen the same object on two consecutive nights running. The sighting was in late August, and August here is, is the depths of winter, so it would have been very cold. And she regarded it an ordinary drive, but I don't think you can consider a drive from Darwin to Adelaide to be an ordinary drive. So Helen and two of her children and her cousin with her baby were returning to Adelaide where Helen was a school teacher. They had been on a short vacation during the school holidays and to show 10-month-year-old Tilsa to her maternal grandparents for the first time. So during the trip, they encountered a UFO 
And as soon as they reached Adelaide, Helen tape recorded the entire incident and her feelings about the matter. And her tape was indeed circulated among ufologists at the time. And she was questioned at length about the encounter. And it was eagerly received and caused some friction between rival factions. And the skeptics sort of, they latched onto it. And the, some of the skeptic uh, thoughts were that the long drive had made both women tired and that they were seeing things. No, said Helen. They drove in turns, they napped and had lengthy sessions of sleep in the back of the car. The skeptic said they were scared out there in the desert, miles from anywhere. And Helen said, I don't get scared easily. She related some hair-raising tales and of brushes with border guards during a, a cross-European trip that she'd had. So she regarded herself as not being someone who's startled easily. And skeptics theorised that Helen had taken stimulants to keep her going, were producing hallucinations. And Helen stated that she only took two aspirins over the 2,000-mile trip. Skeptics stated that she is making up stories to justify their crackpot belief in flying saucers. But until this sighting, Helen was a skeptic, not a believer at all. Skeptics accused her of seeking financial gain. But her interview with Pix People magazine, she was not paid for that story. And she contacted the tabloid because she thought she would get a fair go. All she wanted was her story told her way. The interviewer listened to Helen Wenger and he watched her for three hours and concluded that she was neither a liar, a fool, or a charlatan. She was an articulate woman in her early 30s, raising a family and teaching fourth grade school. Helen was almost apologetic about her insistence that she saw a UFO. She said, you'll think I'm crazy, but I can hardly believe. Believe or not, as you want. So she was sort of, you know, sorry I have to report this incident. That was kind of her attitude. And sitting in her parents' lounge room of a Mr. and Mrs. W.J. Kennedy in the suburb of Underdale in Adelaide and far from the spooky deserts and the mysterious lights and telling her story for the upteenth time, the fact that she did see what she describes seemed highly likely, even to the most sceptical interviewer. In short, Helen was a very credible witness with nothing to gain. So what actually happened? On the second night, while driving south of Alice Springs across the Simpson Desert, Helen stopped the car. She was cold and uncomfortable and the road was rough and she intended to sleep but could not as they were too cramped in the little car. At about 1.45am, she was staring out across the desert in the bright moonlight. She was thinking how lovely it was when she noticed strange light out over a hill in front of her. It attracted her attention because it was so large and because of its colour. It was a yellowish white light. It was definitely not an aircraft as it wasn't moving and it wasn't a satellite because it was too low. And then she noticed a little green light on top of the larger light and that was the only time she ever saw the green light. As she stared, she realised that the object was moving. Not far, but just around in the same area. The light would fade and then come back stronger. But not as if going away, just a variety in the light's intensities, pulsating in and pulsating out. And she roused Dorothy and pointed out what she was seeing. The two women watched it for another 15 minutes. 
And then Helen got the idea, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, of flicking the car lights on, trying to attract the attention of whatever was out there. When she did, when she did this, the object reacted distinctly to her signaling. It came slowly and cautiously towards them, fading and brightening, fading and brightening, but always moving towards their direction in their car until it settled and hovered above the ground about half a mile away. And she felt, Helen felt very strongly that, uh, that they had actually contacted the UFO. And wanting to get nearer to it, they drove on a couple of hundred yards and came level with where it had been. But the light had faded and seemed to have gone. Out in the desert at night, it's a very dark and lonely place and uh, anything is possible. And the two women changed seats and Dorothy drove. As Helen watched, the light was back, moving behind them and then over to their left. It followed them, staying with them all the time as they drove. And an hour had passed since Helen had first noticed the object. And Helen kept on drawing Dorothy's attention to it. And all Dorothy had to do was glance through Helen's window to see the light. And the women wound down the windows just to check it wasn't a reflection in the glass. Sometimes the object would go ahead of them very fast or it would lag behind, but it always returned to accompany the women in the car like it was some sort of chaperone. So it was just following them around. Then in the soft bull dust, so what that means is out in the desert in Australia, there is um, potholes and the, the fine desert dust will fill those, those holes in the road. And you can't actually see the hole in the road because the dust is completely making it look like it's not there. And what happened was the, the two ladies, this is, this is at night, they hit one of these potholes where the, where the bull dust was and the car had a tyre blow out. And when the car slewed, I like that word, slewed to a halt, Dorothy activated the hazard lights, which flash regularly to warn other drivers. And the woman got out of the the women got out of the car, and the object came closer, to with only a quarter of a mile this time, hovering above a paddock. And the women could see the shape of it. The object was like a mushroom, with a thick, upright, topped by a wider half globe shaped projection. And I'll see if I can uh, give you a look at that. So that's what the object looked like. And in that picture, you can see that it's hovering over the car. When it stopped to hover, the object was upright with the shaft vertical. But interestingly, when it moved, it tipped onto its side and traveled nose first. And that's been reported in other, other cases. And the, um, the Baldwin photo of April 2nd, 1966 was a mushroom type object that traveled in exactly the same way. It, it would come down straight like that and then it would tip on its side to travel. And this object that Helen and Dorothy encountered was doing exactly the same thing. And the women had an inexplicable feeling. They were unafraid and feeling terrific. And Helen said, it's hard to believe, but as one has feelings about good and bad, we'd say they are our friends in the sky. But people will say we are nuts, but that's how it was. So they were, they were feeling quite elated that they had this strange object 
um, <laughs> interacting with them out in the desert. So, and the women wanted the object to stay so they could see more of it. And they wanted to tell everyone that there is proof in the sky that these things exist and we don't tend to fantasize, which is what uh, Helen said. We don't tend to fantasize. It took the women some time to change that tire. And they heard a noise and assumed that a car was coming. And they waited, but no car arrived. But the noise stayed the same, neither growing louder nor fading. So while they're out in the desert in the dark changing this tire, there's this noise that they can hear that sounds like a car approaching, but nothing is coming towards them. It wasn't loud, just like a car in the distance. But the women had seen nothing else on the road and there was no wind in the desert. It was a perfectly calm night. Once the wheels were changed and the car was traveling again, the object moved, traveling parallel with the car. The women had come to the conclusion that the object was a UFO and they were experiencing something beyond their knowledge. The object followed them all the way to Kalgara, which is on the Northern Territory and the South Australian border, which they reached at first light. So this object had been following them pretty much all night. And Helen observed that the object all the time, and it stayed to the left of them, sometimes racing ahead at fantastic speed. Then it would stop and fade in and fade out. But its presence was constant, never changing shape, keeping to the same pattern of speeding ahead, and waiting for the car, speeding ahead, waiting for the car. Helen even signaled from the car with a torch. They were in such close contact and the women felt like they wanted to be friendly with the object. And as they reached Kalgera, the shape became even clearer in the rising dawn light. But the object was getting higher as if it was starting to conceal itself. And the women came upon a coach or a bus parked by the road with everybody sleeping. And the women wanted to show them what they had been experiencing, but decided against it. They had woken the people. Had they, If they had woken the people and the UFO had faded away, people would call them stupid as people are sceptical. And then the woman pulled up to a stationary truck but all their shouting and tooting of the horn and banging on the cab did not raise the driver. And the women knew that they weren't imagining what had been with them all night, but they wanted other people to see. And as it grew lighter, they could see the texture of the object. And it looked aluminium, but not chrome shiny. It had no light at this stage, just a glow about it. And as they were reaching Kalgera, the object disappeared. So very, very interesting. And they, had, they drove most of the day deep into South Australia and were southeast of Kingunya and heading towards Woomera as night fell. All day they had talked about the sighting but had seen nothing more and both had a good sleep while the other drove. And I'm just going to put up another picture. So this sort of shows the trip. So from Alice Springs down to Kalgara and heading all the way down to Woomera. So you can see uh, Woomera is a, um, there's a military base there, uh, which also has a lot of UFO sightings in that area. 
And down at the bottom of the picture, you can see Adelaide, which was their ultimate destination. So driving from Darwin, which is north of Alice Springs, Alice Springs is probably rudimentarily the, the halfway mark. So that's really, really interesting to see. So, so they drove deep into South Australia and southeast of Kingunya and heading towards Woomera as the night fell. And all day they had talked about the sighting but had seen nothing more and both had a good sleep while the other drove. So they were looking after each other as they were travelling along on this big trip. They had indeed speculated whether they would see the UFO again but thought it unlikely. The original sighting was now a few hundred miles back and they really wanted to see it again. So they've driven a long way from when they first encountered it the previous night. They did get their wish and they saw the light on the ground about a mile away in the scrub. They wondered if it had followed them all day at high altitude, perhaps right up there unseen. And Helen thought on this occasion, it could have been someone with a spotlight or someone parked in the scrub, maybe a couple. It was just a light as they'd seen the previous night, with no specific shape. So this is the second night. Helen got her torch out, wound down the window and signalled in that direction. And the light repeated the signal. If Helen flicked the torch three times, the object responded the same. Two flashes brought two more from the light. This time they felt different. They felt frightened that the thing was back. Interesting that the first day they were feeling like it was really good and the second day they were for the second experience they were feeling scared frightened and to, i think what scared them was that the women had felt that the ufo had been watching them all day and she was convinced that it had come back and followed them into the night on the second night after a few miles they saw it again and it answered Helen's torch signals. It began its hide and seek game with the car. They would drive, it would disappear. Then it would appear again further ahead, closer on either side of the road. And the women were frightened as there seemed no question that the UFO was in contact with them. Helen had the feeling that the object wanted them to stop. It would come closer and hover and the travellers could see it sitting there. They would drive past and again, the object would overtake and wait for them. And this happened six or seven times. The object would overtake them, wait, overtake, wait. And she'd seen the object rise from its hovering position and take off. And then underneath a green light flying from the underside of the UFO, they'd been watching illuminated a large area of the ground. So the object had risen up and it shone a light down on the ground as they passed. And they could see in this greenish light, the desert had been illuminated. The object again disappeared for a while. And then she saw the light skimming through the trees, enabling Helen to catch glimpses now and then. But by this time, the women were feeling really scared. Uh, again, the opposite feeling of uh, the elation of the night before. And they came to a side road to the left in brilliant moonlight, clear and bright. Helen looked out for the UFO. 
And as they passed the intersection, there it was, landed, a hundred yards down the road. It was not something that belonged to this earth. It was as high as a house and nearly covering the full width of the road. So we'll just have another, another look at that. So that's the object there. So really impressive piece of um, piece of machinery for sure. So, and as she described it as high as a house, nearly covering the full width of the road. And at this point in time, they could see the materials of which it seemed to be made, the dull aluminium and matte black. But she only really saw it for a few seconds, but it was enough to print it in her mind. There was no lights on the object but it was illuminated by the moon. It was a, a semi-spherical mushroom head with a central staff and it was standing on landing legs. The legs were aluminium looking, but the black in between could have been the dark ground behind of the desert seen through the legs. Helen gasped and Dorothy asked her what was the matter. Helen wanted to go back. But was too scared. Now they were confronted by the now they were confronted by the thing. It wasn't the object that frightened her, just the enormous fact that it was in front of them. And as they drove on, Helen tried to sleep. And whenever she put her head down, she would look up and see the object. And this went on for another hour. And in the end, she fell asleep and they eventually reached Adelaide. Wow. So I hope you enjoyed that, um, that uh, recounting of this really unusual and, and high-level uh, desert encounter with the two women and the children driving down to Adelaide and having such a close encounter. And I think some of the interesting points to note from this case is that they're credible witnesses with nothing to gain at all for, for telling this story. They could have kept it to themselves. Uh, it's an extended encounter on consecutive nights, which is also important, I think, that it's not just a few seconds or a couple of minutes. This object interacted with them for a very, very long time. And the object was following them, watching them, and seemingly playing with them. So darting back and forth, um, hovering, coming forward, moving back. And the object is well described by, by Helen and, and the witnesses. And the object was much bigger than the car, described as being house size. It shone a green searchlight onto the ground, which they could see the desert in a green light. Um, and the witnesses felt a wide range of emotions, from elation, confusion, to fear. And they struggled to alert others. So, which I thought was interesting, that there's, there's a bus laying, there's a bus parked there, a big coach, and they decided not to disturb the coach. Down the road a bit further, they find a truck and they try to get the truck driver to wake up, but the truck could have been abandoned. It might have been broken down because you can't imagine someone banging on the side of the door and hooting their horn and the truck driver sleeping through that. So that's interesting. They seem to be transfixed by the object. The object was, was, was very uh, a very sort of a, um, engaging and hypnotic type of a thing to encounter. And I think anyone would feel like that. And interestingly, in this case, there was no effects on the car. So the car wasn't stopped. The, the lights didn't go out. The electrical system didn't stop. The stereo kept on, you know, the radio could have played. They 
the car was not affected. So it's interesting that in some cases, uh, cars are affected, and in other cases, they're not affected. And the object was cautious. I really like that behaviour about this case too. It, it, it was. It, it approached with caution. It followed. Then it seemed to engage actively, and disappear and reappear at will, which is um, which is really really interesting. The object illuminated. It dulled and it illuminated again. It was the light was pulsating. There's a pulsating light to it. And this encounter occurred over an incredible distance. Uh, so it was, um, you know, a very, very long way from Alice Springs all the way down to um, down to Adelaide is um, is thousands of kilometres. So really, really interesting. But I think there was a lost opportunity with this case as well. Uh, and I think that was visiting where it had landed, whether it had been possible to go back to actually go to the location where it had sat on the ground and to see perhaps if there was any landing marks on the ground or any other effect on the environment, burns or anything else like that. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, and I, I'd never, ever heard of this case before. I, I had actively looked for it. I'd actively been looking through old newspaper articles and, and I've got lots of them here here at the house. And I found this one and I thought, this is a really interesting case. Two women or, and children in the car, long distance, object interacts with them for an extraordinary amount of time over a long distance. And I really hope that you, um, that you really enjoyed that. So the next case is also a car versus UFO style report. And it was well known in Australia at the time uh, when it actually occurred and is still pretty well known among Australian researchers. And this case was of note for several key reasons. The principal key witness, again, was female and she was driving alone at night. She encountered the same object on two separate occasions, a different object to what the people in the Northern Territory saw, so completely different. But she had seen a object on two separate occasions. The craft's occupants or someone was telepathically communicating with the witness and the witness was interacting with entities that others could not see despite being in the same vicinity. This case also occurred very close to my fellow researcher's house. Andrew Arnold uh, lived down in Frankston. And uh, it occurred on the road right where he lived. And I've been past this location many, many times over the years. The local police were not that interested in her account. Despite her attempts to alert them, the witness tells her experience in a straightforward and matter-of-fact kind of way, very similar to Helen Benger. Both women were in their 30s. They were both mothers, reliable, credible, believable. And authorities were at a loss to explain what had happened and what had occurred. Investigators were left puzzled by the witnesses' reactions 
and communications with the extraordinary. So what happened, particularly in this second case? We'll have a discussion on that now. It's known as the Maureen Puddy case from 1972, which was a very active year in UFOs. And I've got a picture of her here, which I will share. So that's Maureen looking very 1972 style haircut at the time. And um, that's, that's her. And her story starts with a visit to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, where her son had been taken after an accident at school when a cupboard had fallen on him and he had broken his leg. He'd been taken to the hospital by the Angel of Mercy helicopter air ambulance service. And while driving home from a visit to the boy on the 5th of July, 1972, so this is again a winter case in 1972, she called in at her mother's home for a cup of tea and a chat, leaving there about 9.15 p.m., taking the shortcut along the Murraduck Highway from Frankston. So Murraduck is spelled M-O-O-R-A-D-U-C, Murraduck Highway. And that location is, I'll give you a bit of an idea where you can see that location. So here's Melbourne uh, around Port Phillip Bay. And just down to the down a bit there, you can see Frankston, and there's a little dot below Frankston. So that's that's the approximate area where it was. And this picture here shows you a bit of a closer view. So where Frankston is in the top part of the of the uh, of the image there, down where that little white dot is, is is the approximate area. And that's on what's called the Mornington Peninsula, which is a great, lovely um, seaside area with a big bay, lots of tourists, and a very very busy area in this day and age. So that sort of orientates you to, to where it was. So she's gone to visit her, visit her son, uh, called in at her mother's place on the way home for a chat, leaving there about 9.15pm, taking that shortcut along the Murraduck Highway. And on this occasion, she saw a blue light reflecting down over the car and thought it was a helicopter flying overhead and maybe trying to get a message to her. Although how they could tell her car in the dark had not, had not occurred to her. So she thought she'd better stop and see what they wanted. She had not bargained on what confronted her, a large circular object, like two saucers placed together with one upside down, the usual saucer shape. The object was possibly, in her estimating, two telephone poles high, and would have spanned the strip of road about 24 feet wide, also taking in what we call the nature strip or the side of the road, on either side of the road, making the, the saucer approximately about 100 feet across. So I've, I've got another image here to show you, which is very representational. So her car was an old Holden station wagon, as you can see there, and she's next to a, um, a, a power substation where uh, electricity for the area uh, it's a big network of uh, of electrical systems and subsystems and the object was perhaps hovering over her car and in the vicinity of the of that um that substation so this other image i'm going to show you now is maureen at that exact location so she stopped her car and she's outside the car and that was taken pretty much 
uh, by the media uh, after she had had that encounter. And this is where this is the substation today. That's that same area where she was on that highway. Very busy road now, but back then it was not that that busier road as what you know as what it was in 1972. It was a bit more, a bit quieter back then. So very, very interesting. And so she's seen this big object. She's got out of the car. She's leaned back against the car and taken a long look at the object, wondering what it was that she was seeing. The object's surface was smooth, with no joints, welds, seams, rivets, no doors, windows, portholes, and no wheels, which you wouldn't expect to see, I suppose. The huge object was radiating a brilliant blue light all around, an intense glow. There was no movement, no wobbling, no rotating, but a faint humming could be heard. So it's interesting that, that some objects will have landing gear and land on the ground and others tend to hover uh, without landing gear. So maybe they have both, maybe they have landing gear, maybe they can defy gravity and just and stay there hovering in the air uh, close to the ground. And she must have noted um, and she must have noted all these things while wondering what sort of aircraft it was and before fear took over, at which time she quickly got back into her car and drove off as fast as she could, only to find the object was maintaining its position just above and behind the car. No matter how far she travelled, the object seemed to remain at the same distance. So like Helen Benger's experience in uh, the Northern Territory, we've got Maureen Putty, being pursued by this object as well. So there she is again. So it's following her down the road. And after a while, she saw that the, the blue light had been following her, it was going around her, and then all of a sudden it streaked off in the opposite direction. And she realised that it must be that the chase must be over. It had followed her for about eight miles. And the witness reported her sighting to the police at Dramana, which is just a bit further south. And she told some family members and some friends who considered it all to be a bit of a joke. And she decided that she wasn't going to talk about it anymore. Until three weeks later, on Tuesday, the 25th of July, 1972, after having visited her son in hospital, she followed a similar route or similar routine. And she went and had a cup of tea with her mother on route home. And then she left at the same time, about 9.15. Maureen arrived at the Muradoc Road, travelled a short distance, about a mile, when the blue light appeared over her car once more. Oh, not again, she thought, and this time she said, I'm not going to stop. And she grabbed the steering wheel more determinedly and put her foot flat to the floor. And the car just drifted to a stop on the side of the road, near a railway, near a railway crossing. And no matter what she did, the Holden would not reply to her demands. So unlike the Helen Benger case in the Northern Territory, in this particular case, she um, the car was affected by the object. So she could move on the steering wheel. Whatever she tried to do, uh, it would um, the car would not respond. And she was wondering, where do I go from here? And terrified, she gripped the wheel and looked out the windscreen to see that the object was hanging silently in the air above her car. The countryside was bathed in a blue light. And then a voice spoke to her, not audibly, but in her head. And she said it was as if the words had been put into a computer 
and came out in the most beautifully modulated voice and perfect English that she had ever heard. That's interesting. And during this time, she experienced a most unusual sensation. She said that if you could be in a vacuum, then she had been perfectly silent and still. And the message she received in her mind was, don't be afraid. We mean you no harm. Your tests will be negative. Tell the media you are now in control. That's what she was told. And at that moment, the car started up again as she had turned, as if she had turned the key. And she sat there for a moment or two. And then she drove off as fast as she could possibly go. And now that's this location here. So this is the train line here. Um, and you can see where it says Mornington Railway off to the left. So that's that intersection. And again, back at that time, it would have been a very, very much quieter place. And this is that um, intersection today. And you can see the, the remains of the um, remains of the train lines uh, passing over. And of course, it's, um, it's not really the current train line anymore, but it was was back at that um, was back at that time so that's a really incredible experience don't be afraid we mean you no harm your tests will be negative tell the media you are now in control and so she's driven off as fast as she can and she stopped at the same police station only to find it was closed and then went on to the next still on her way home and when she went to the to the second police station she told the officer I want to make a report of a sighting of a flying saucer. Oh, yes, madam, came the reply. And she insisted in fear and frustration. So the policeman humoured her and he, and he recorded what she had to say. And the next morning she phoned the Laverton RAF State, the RAF, Royal Australian Air Force Station, to ask if they could offer any explanation of what she had seen, to which they replied that it could not have been an aircraft or a balloon, as neither would have been in the area at the time. But don't say anything as it could cause panic. They would send her a questionnaire to complete. But when later asked about this, you'd have to be an astronaut to understand the form, was her response to the, to the pro forma that she had received from the RAF. And she didn't bother to return it because they really treated her like a bit of, a, bit of an idiot. And the third experience is a really interesting aspect of this case. It was only a psychic experience. And it occurred about six months later. So you're getting towards the, you know, the end of 1972. And she had um, phoned Judith McGee and Paul Norman, who were the Viewforce investigators, and she was rather agitated when she rang them. And for some days, Maureen had been hearing a voice calling to her to return to the meeting place. Believing she heard someone calling her name at the front door, she went to open it. And her husband, who was an invalid in a wheelchair, asked who it was. But there was no one there. When she went shopping, she heard, Maureen, Maureen, return to the meeting place. And she looked around to find there was no one near. She felt she had to go to the meeting place, but she was too scared to go alone. So she, she arranged to go with Paul Norman and Judith McGee. And they agreed to go that Wednesday evening. Paul fueled up the car, Judith prepared a hot drink and some supper, <laughs> very much the Australian thing to do, um, for they didn't know whether they are going to be sitting out there all night or 
whether they need something to keep them going on a on a on a on a night and how long they're going to be out there. And, and even though it was supposed to be summer, it was apparently a fairly cool night. So they went out to the opposite the electric substation at about eight thirty to nine o'clock, and it was a little bit a little bit early, and it wasn't dark, and they could see Maureen's Holden station wagon when they arrived. And she got out of the car and she came straight over to the investigators and she nearly went off the road back there. And she suggested that um, that they should all get together. And they all hopped into uh, Maureen's car. So they parked, so, Jude, so Judith and uh, Paul had parked their car and they all climbed into Maureen's car. And Judith said that she was experiencing a tingling sensation like a mild electric shock, which passed off quite quickly. So that's, that's the investigator saying that. And Maureen told her that in the centre of the front seat between them, where, the, where they sat, an entity completely clad in a type of gold foil suit was there. And as she turned to look in the direction, she was startled and she almost ran off the road. And this is, this is what had happened before she had met the met with the two investigators so she had this entity appear in the car and that's why she'd nearly driven off the road and by the time they had reached the meeting place um, which was hidden from the passing traffic by a few trees paul sat in the back seat of the station wagon while judah stayed with maureen and they talked about the latest incident along the road when she grabbed judah's arm and pointed across the car exclaiming there he is can't you see him? And she shook Judith's arm, saying that you must be able to see. You must be able to see this 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 this, this alien. He's outside the car now. And it was, but the two investigators couldn't see. They couldn't see anything at all. So, and she told them that the that the that the alien was coming closer to the car. In fact, so close that if she put her arm out, she could possibly touch him. He was now standing almost beside the front headlight. And so Paul took a little walk around the car and as he came to where the entity was standing, the entity moved back to allow Paul to pass between him and the car. And at this point, the entity beckoned to Maureen to follow him, but she was adamantly declaring that she would not. And Judith told her to go, gently ease her car door, but she hung onto the steering wheel and would not buzz, budge. Maureen would not get out of the car. She was very very frightened. The entity became impatient when she would not follow and she became upset. So the entity's wanting her to come out and she's not coming out of the car. And the entity disappeared behind bushes and she suddenly commenced describing the interior of the UFO. And she said that the entity was standing there pointing to a large mushroom-like object in the centre of a large circular room. The, the centre object was taller than an average person was a like jelly moving all the time. This, this is inside the spacecraft. There were lines like those of Roman numerals around the lower portion. The top of the mushroom had lines on it, and the whole thing seemed fixed to the floor. She was look, Maureen's looking around the room and becoming very agitated, crying, saying, I can't get out. There are no doors or windows. I can't get out. Judith put her arm on her shoulders in an attempt to calm her down and could feel tears on her hand where um, Maureen had been crying and she was really, really upset. And Judith decided to direct her thoughts to the entity 
um, nothing to lose and maybe something to gain. And she was very concerned about Maureen's state. And she felt that Maureen was going to go through a nervous collapse or maybe even have a stroke or a, or a heart attack. And so she requested that they take pity on the poor girl. And as she said, as she thought that, Maureen said, he wants me to close my eyes. And I said that, and, and Judah said that you should do that immediately. And she felt her relax as if she was in a trance. So it was a really, really, really strange, strange encounter that Maureen had had with these, with the two investigators in the car on the side of the Muradoch Highway. And she'd come out of the trance and she seemed quite normal. And so they went on and had their supper discussing the mushroom object and trying to identify it. And she was, there was just a lot of confusion and, and they felt that she had had some type of, like it was, a, it was a, a psychic experience that Maureen had had. So she's been in the presence of the two investigators and this entity has come and interacted with her, but it's not visible to the actual, um, to, the, uh, to the investigators at all. So it was, it was really a very puzzling event. And after that, Maureen didn't really have any other encounters. But it's just good to see with these two cases today that um, they both have their similarities and they both have their differences. One's out in the desert, one's down on the Mornington Peninsula near Melbourne. They're both very, very uh, involved cases. There's a lot going on in both. And Maureen's becomes very complex because she's having psychic communications back and forth with, with an entity of some description uh, from that craft, uh, whereas Helen, Helen and Dorothy were, were really only interacted with from the point of view that the object was showing, was showing interest in them. Maureen's car was affected by the object. It came to a halt. It, she lost control of it and couldn't couldn't drive it. Whereas in the Northern Territory, they did not have that problem at all. They could just drive the car without any effect. So two really, really fascinating and interesting cases. Um, and they really are just a whole part of a, of a, of a much greater UFO history that uh, that is present here in here in Australia. So we'll talk about the third case that I was going to talk about um, perhaps next week, which is the little bit of a brief introduction to it. It's the Tully saucer nest, which was um, in January 1966, uh, where a craft came out of a lagoon on a banana farm and that's a really interesting and a quite a well-known case as well there's a lot of um that's that that is pretty well known but we'll we'll discuss that and uh and we'll go over the facts of what happened in that particular case so remember if you want to keep in touch with me and you want to communicate you can contact me on my email bhurle11 at gmail.com and also, if you like, you can go onto Facebook and join or follow my UFO page, which is called UFO Vic. And on there, I share a lot of other additional UFO information as it relates 
to Australia, uh, to Victoria, which is where I'm primarily based. And it's just a, a page where we where we try to bring out anything new that we can find. And I try to keep it as Australian based as, as possible. So once again, I want to thank you very much for joining me on this episode. Uh, and I absolutely cannot wait to see you again next week. Thank you and good night.